Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast for today, May 12th, 2022. I'm Noah Rothman. With us, as always, is Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, Noah. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, Noah. John is out today, but joining us in his stead is Josh Crashauer, host of the Against the Grain podcast and a political columnist for National Journal. Thank you for joining us, Josh. Hey, Noah, it's great to be back on the Commentary Podcast. We appreciate it. So we're going to talk all politics news today. Um, We always talk politics news, but this is more electoral politics, the real stuff. Um, It's primary season, and the primaries are well underway. And the topic uh, of primary interest to the commentary set and inside the Beltway seems to be, how's Trump doing? Trump isn't on the ballot anywhere, and yet he really is. Um, in Ohio, Indiana, and we had a couple of races in West Virginia and Nebraska, and all anybody seems to be talking about are the Republican races, primarily, and which ones Trump has endorsed in, and which ones where he's doing all right with his endorsements. So, Josh, I want to get your thoughts on this, but first I have one. After Ohio, in the Ohio Senate race, where Donald Trump uh, endorsed J.D. Vance late, and it seemed to really have some relevance, uh, helped Vance emerged from a crowded field and differentiate himself and emerge victorious uh, with a pretty convincing victory. Uh, and then Politico produced this piece, said Donald Trump is 22 for 22 in the primaries he endorsed in in Indiana and Ohio. And it seemed like a lot of those candidates were going to win no matter what. Is anybody really on the, under the impression that Greg Pence would have lost his, his, his bid in the absence of Donald Trump's victory? So or, or endorsement. So it seemed like they were establishing something like a narrative of uh, Trumpism's resurgence. Um, but in the interim, he has continued to perform relatively well, even in contested in uh, uh, races without an incumbent. So what do you make of this narrative? Is this just the Beltway's fixation with Trump or is he really emerging as the power broker in 2022 and ultimately a force to be reckoned with in 2024? So I think you have to draw a distinction between Trump and Trumpiness. And we're seeing a lot of Trumpy candidates doing quite well. But we're also seeing some of Trump, Trump's favorite candidates struggling. Uh, we, we saw that just this past Tuesday in Nebraska, where he endorsed a, a businessman who uh, was a big, big supporter of the MAGA movement, uh, also had a lot of sexual harassment, misconduct allegations against him. And he lost in Nebraska. Obviously, Trump got J.D. Vance across the finish line, but it was a crowded primary filled with flawed Republican candidates. So the endorsement made the difference, but Vance still only won 32% of the Republican vote, not an overwhelming you know, share in, in that Republican race. And then he got uh, Mooney, uh, Congressman Mooney in West Virginia, this Tuesday, who was running against another Republican lawmaker who was a little more pragmatic establishment, and, and Mooney won pretty comfortably. Uh, but, but the biggest story, guys, is Pennsylvania. Um, I think this is a real, gives us a real microcosm of what's going on in, in the Republican Party. You know, Trump endorsed Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz, uh, you know, a celebrity, he, he, he's engaged in some of the, the more uh, entertainment. He's, he's from the entertainment wing of the, of, the, of the Trump movement. And despite that endorsement, Oz is not doing very well in the polls. He has not taken off. You've got Dave McCormick, who is, uh, you know, kind of a Glenn Youngkin type, a more establishment Republican, who's backed by a lot of 
folks in Trump world. And they're both spending lots and lots of money on campaign ads uh, in Pennsylvania. And then you have a third candidate, Kathy Barnett, who has barely spent any money, has a bare bones staff, but is echoing the most right wing conspiratorial messages that you hear from MAGA world. And she's got a very good chance to win this primary. And Republicans are now panicking with a week to go before that Pennsylvania primary. So Republicans aren't, endor- aren't, aren't gravitating towards Trump's candidate. So Trump doesn't have this magic wand that he can wave and, and get Republicans to support his candidate in every race. We're seeing that in Georgia with Brian Kemp doing quite well there as well. But we are seeing this very conspiratorial, anti-establishment, anti-elite nihilist movement that even if Trump isn't endorsing the right candidate, candidates further to the right or less electable are, are, are doing doing well in, in other races. And that, that's a real problem for the Republican it, Party. The, the, the Pennsylvania Senate race is so fascinating as a, as a microcosm of, of Trumpism, because in a weird way, it pits his two greatest impulses against each other, right? The, the desire to be celebrity, you know, to like support a celebrity, a fellow celebrity in Oz, and then the crazy conspiratorial QAnon types, which is the Barnett. And she's like, she's not even answering basic questions about her life, her biography, even conservative reporters are frustrated with her. Like, she's just kind of come out of nowhere, which I think speaks to something Noah's been saying for a while in the podcast about the Republican Party, which is it has this, you know, almost historic uh, opportunity here to, to take power back in, in Congress, and it could very easily squander it as it has done in the past by putting up these absolutely ridiculous candidates. And she looks like one of those. But for but for Trump, it really is two sides of the same Trump coin, and he's got them pitted against each other. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say the Republican id is basically a middle finger against the elites, right? I mean, that, that is the ultimate, like, id of the Republican Party. It's where the candidate that's just down with the establishment, down with the media, down with the elites the, the, in Washington. And you look, there's, there's, there's J.D. Vance, like, at its best, there's some, some real merit to that argument. At its worst, you get Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, you know, campaigning with J.D. Vance, campaigning with some of these candidates and, and echoing some of the worst elements of the of, of conspiracy theories and, and really, really ugly, um, you know, type, types of arguments coming from, from the right. So that that is what Republicans have tried to, um, you know, the Republican leadership, Mitch McConnell, the establishment, have, have tried to restrain these forces, but Donald Trump is just letting them loose within the party and it, it's getting worse in recent weeks. So, I mean, I think, you know, because the... To the extent Trump has a had a magic wand, he's he's waved it already and and changed the party. Um, be, it doesn't matter so much what for him personally whether or not the candidates he backs wins. Um, he sort of wins anyway, um, so long as the Trumpiness is in there, right? Yeah, I think he rather would be the king than the kingmaker. He doesn't right. care what his record is. I mean, he'll, he'll spin away. I'll, I mean, he's he's going to lose in Georgia. He's going to lose in Idaho. His candidate there and for governor is going to lose. He embarrassed himself in Alabama where he endorsed Mo Brooks and then unendorsed Mo Brooks. He's not going to have a, a winning record with these competitive races, I think, when the month of May is finished. But that may not matter. That may not matter. You're, you're, you may have a MAGA candidate in Pennsylvania. You're going to have Republicans, even the more establishment-oriented Republicans, echoing you know, what Trump is saying. So, so he, he may not get every single candidate he endorsed across the finish line. His record is looking a lot worse than it did when he was president, 
but his the bigger picture, the the move the movement of the Republican Party, the Trumpism is, is definitely winning out in the big picture. Yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> I don't want to put words in your mouth, Josh, but I'm not sure if even anti elitism quite captures the sentiment that Tom Massey aptly uh, captured when he said that what the Republican Party was looking for, paraphrasing, is the craziest son of a bitch in the race. And so it doesn't seem so much as anti-elitism as much as just being the most offensive to respectable sensibilities as you possibly can be. Just being a toxic presence that's willing to touch every possible third rail to demonstrate that you can survive it. Um, And to the extent that we had this something of a counterindication from the primary race for Nebraska's gubernatorial race, that's attributable only to the fact that they had a, he had a very flawed primary candidate or a very flawed uh, opponent with his own personal picadillos, as opposed to the possibility that Nebraskans still have sensibilities that maybe are also uh, in line with what we understand to be a general, a genteel uh, effect that, uh, you know, is, is something that doesn't, doesn't put off everyone in the room. Right. Maybe there's still some attachment in the Republican Party to something approaching respectability. You know, I think there there are a few encouraging signs for for the party uh, in Georgia. In some of the governor's races, I think Republicans realize when you actually have an executive, when you're picking someone who's the chief executive of a state, they may take that that responsibility uh, for the nomination a little more seriously. Uh, And and that's why Kemp looks like he'll easily uh, defeat the Trump endorsed uh, David Perdue in Georgia. Uh, but then again, you've got, um, you got Pennsylvania where uh, in a, a real MAGA, I, I would call him something of a zealot, a MAGA zealot in, in, in Doug Mastriano. He's a state Senator who, um, you know, he combines like the most right-wing ideology with some of the more uh, just anti-establishment, uh, anti-elite rhetoric. And, uh, you know, he, he's someone who could just single-handedly fumble away every single Republican opportunity in the state of Pennsylvania. A very favorable state right now for Republicans if they nominated some, some half-decent candidates. Before we get to that contest in the general, because it looks like Fetterman's going to walk away with it, Dave McCormick did his best to really thread that needle, right? I mean, he hired Hope Hicks, like he was doing his best to ingratiate himself with the MAGA wing while obviously not being a part of it. Um, but these voters can sniff out somebody who's just playing playing the role, right? Which makes you wonder why Mamet Oz still has so much staying power in these polls. He's, he's fading a little, but he's still up or near at, or at the top of the of this crowded primary field. So what, what do voters use, what do Republican voters use in your mind to identify who's the true MAGA candidate? It's not obviously Trump's endorsement per se, it's certainly not surrounding himself with the apparatchiks who were in the White House during his term. So is it just being a jerk? Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll give the voters a, maybe a little credit in that they can sniff out a phony. There are a lot of people that are playing MAGA. They're, they're, you know, J.D. Vance is, is sort of a, a great example of someone who was clearly in the anti-Trump wing up until 2018 and then all of a sudden has this transformation because that the mood of the Republican voters in Ohio we're totally going in a different direction. And if you have any ambitions to be a senator, congressman, wanting to win elective office and, and, and win a Republican primary, you've got to play act a little bit. Uh, so with, with McCormick and Oz, you got these two folks who, who didn't at the time of, of, of when they jumped in the race live in Pennsylvania. They're, they're from out of state. They're very well, hedge fund, 
co-CEO and a, you know, a celebrity doctor who, you know, had Michelle Obama on, on television and endorsed Hillary, said nice things about Hillary Clinton and, and did all kinds of things that are just very un-MAGA on his show. These are not um, ideal candidates that reflect, reflect uh, the MAGA movement. And I think a lot of these voters can sniff out the a phony. Like, I think there is this disconnect where, you know, the establishment or people who are trying to, you know, nominate mainstream candidates know that they have to play act, but ultimately you're not going to win when you, when you don't come across as authentic. Well, and this is a debate we've been having on this podcast for a while that you just, you just got to the heart of it, which is our voters, do voters really want more Trump or do they want more Trump anti-establishment kind of, you know, uh, willingness to fight an anti-elite sort of rhetoric? Because if it's the latter, that's actually long-term much better for the Republican Party. Um, if it's the former, then the Republican Party long-term is cooked, like that's it. Um, so that, and I guess we'll know more obviously in November, but the, but that you're right that these, these primary battles among Republicans in these states are so crucial because if you don't have an option and you're a pretty reliable Republican voter, you're just going to cast your ballot for that, for the crazy person, if that's who's on, on the ballot. And look, I think it's encouraging that in like two very Republicans, or at least one Republican Southern state and one swing uh, Southern state, the two candidates that are just unequivocally, that were at least unequivocally running on Stop the Steal, the election denialism, Mo Brooks in Alabama, and David Perdue, shamelessly in Georgia, have gotten little traction. You know, the, the, the candidates, I mean, Kathy Barnett is not talking about, I mean, she's incorporating this election stuff as part of her message, but she's actually talked about abortion. She's talked about other issues that conservatives can relate to. Ted Budd is, is running on, 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 you know, North Carolina. He's the Trump endorsed candidate out there, but he, he's running sort of a, you know, a traditional conservative uh, campaign to the right of where most Republicans have been, to be sure, but he's not focusing on, on the 2020 election. So I, you know, I do think it's a it's more Trumpism than Trump. The, the candidates that are literally mimicking Trump, Purdue being the best example, are, are doing poorly. But the ones that are getting the zeitgeist of, of what Trump was all about, um, I think, are, are are getting more traction, and that that means a tolerance for, you know, positions or, or, or you know, a tone that is that is out of the mainstream as well. Um, regarding why uh, Oz is is still in the running. I mean, I think this is where Christine's point about the, the race sort of having split off the, the two sides of Trumpism is so sharp um, because part of part of Trumpism is the celebrity appeal. And he he is still hanging in there because he has that. And it's not just celebrity appeal, by the way. It's um, it's being embattled. And uh, people have been trying to call out Oz on his garbage pseudo advice for ages and that's been a sort of fight f for him that he's so that that is a sort of that's another aspect of trumpism is is fighting off from a defensive crouch um or or actually going on the offense uh but but having um sort of having to 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 fight on a front at all times so i i think it's interesting to compare vance and oz because vance's major sin to to MAGA world in Ohio was that he was anti-Trump. Oz's big sin is that he's taken liberal positions on some of the cultural hot issues of the moment from transgender rights to mask mandates to, you know, even, even Hillary Clinton uh, and having liberal figures on his talk show. And in Ohio, 
I mean, Trump, I think, is actually kind of savvy about the, these endorsements in, in one sense, in that he can't, like I said, he's not, he doesn't want to be a kingmaker as much as being a king. He's got Vance by the, you know, he, he has Vance where he wants him. You know, Vance is beholden now to Trump. He's going to endorse Trump for president if he runs in 2024. You know, whether he won or not, he knew he would have an ally. He, he knew he was making someone, and if he won, would be a powerful ally in, in the MAGA movement, no matter what, what his true views are. Oz, you know, the, the celebrity appeal with Oz is obvious, but Oz is more vulnerable. In fact, I've never seen a Republican candidate of that, stat, of that you know, high profile have a negative favorability rating. He, more Republicans dislike him than like him, according to the latest polling I've seen. I've never seen that before in, in, in my years of covering politics in a primary. But, I, but, he, but, he, but they don't like him because there's so much footage of him saying things that are so at odds with, with the issues that, that conservative voters care about. But that's not entirely unlike Trump either. I mean, it's certainly not schmoozing with, you know, high profile liberals, you know, having Hillary Clinton at your wedding or, you know, whatever, you know, Trump's long history of 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 just um, sort of apolitical to just sort of zeitgeisty, uh, you know, go along type politics um, that 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 didn't stop him. Well, it didn't, but the rationale for that was, well, yeah, I mean, of course, everything's corrupt. The system's corrupt. So you have to be corrupt along with it. I mean, that was the rationale that was advanced, I think, by Trump and subsequently adopted. <clears throat> rationale is the wrong word. Rationalization is more like it. Um, but nevertheless, one that that if you're that cynical that you can convince yourself of some legitimacy to it. Uh, briefly, well, let's talk. I want to talk about the, the general election in Ohio. And but let's stay with Pennsylvania for a minute, because John Fetterman is going to walk away with this lieutenant governor. Um, he's got a look that sort of reflects, I think, his general weirdness. He's a weird dude. Not really sure what he, he what he believes. He has governed to the extent that he's got you can govern as a lieutenant governor, um, but has demonstrated that his sympathies are with the left, the progressive left. But he's running real to the center during this primary race, um, which is interesting, both as an appeal to the general electorate, but as an appeal to Pennsylvania's Democratic primary voters. This is not a far left state. No. Also, because he looks like an extra on Sons of Anarchy, but that's just, you know. <laughs> I mean, I kind of like his look. It's, it's very authentic, um, which has got, which is, you know, part of his appeal. He's, I, I was reading a piece the other day. It was like, well, the, you know, the Fetterman camp doesn't want to focus on policy. Doesn't want to get too granular. and certainly doesn't want to talk over the heads of, of their voters. They want to approach this race with a, a sentimentality uh, an idea of uh, how voters sort of just suss out vibes. Right, he's always wearing a hoodie for that, like the hoodie vibe. Like there's a whole, yeah, there's a whole look, which is kind of interesting. But that's dangerous if you're just jello I and mean, nobody knows what you believe. And this is going to be a competitive general election. Yeah, I mean, he looks like the bouncer at, at the local bar. And <laughs> that's wears, much better, yes. <laughs> and he, you know, he wore shorts, right? He, he wore like gym clothes to showing up with the president of the United States. Like, which, look, I, I, I actually like, I was very um, skeptical of Fetterman, both winning the, the primary, which he clearly is favored to do, and, and, and his general election prospects. Though I will give him credit because at a time when a lot of even mainstream establishment Democratic candidates are pandering to the left and, and doing things, we just saw you know this week in, in, in the Senate, Schumer unable to even get a bill that could get his own party united. Um, and not getting Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski on board. Like Democrats have shot themselves in the foot so many times on their own politically by going to the left. Fetterman is actually doing the opposite. You know, even though I think he, you're right, Noah, he's a, he's a true blue progressive. 
he's actually run this race a little more to the center than I would have imagined. And that's smart. He has good people around him. That, 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 that could end up being the difference in this race that even though Republicans are going to have a good year, you know, politically speaking, even though Pennsylvania is a swing state, if Republicans nominate someone who doesn't want to listen to professional political advice, if they nominate someone who has extreme positions and Fetterman is willing to say the right things, even if he, even if he really is quite progressive, that, that might be enough to, to, to go against the tide. So, you know, I, I have been uh, impressed by the discipline of the Fetterman campaign. He certainly, I don't think, he, some people think he has this unique ability to win over, you know, working class voters that have, you know, voted for Trump and, and have left the Democratic Party. I don't know if that's the case, but I do think that he, he's good enough if Republicans nominate someone too extreme or too exotic. He, he, he's, his campaign is talented enough to take advantage of that. Let's talk about Ohio's general election. Um, J.D. Vance versus Tim Ryan. Uh, uh, not really an especially noteworthy record uh, as a congressman. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that he mounted a challenge to Nancy Pelosi for speakership a, a few years back as to being the centrist you know, alternative to progressive governance in Washington. And that's sort of been his brand, um, which isn't a very attractive brand for the national political scene. But it's clearly done well for him in, in Ohio. And uh, he's made his fair share of mistakes, but he's sort of positioning himself as as a, a respectable candidate. And now J.D. Vance's challenge is to frame himself as a respectable candidate to a certain degree. Maybe it's just my effete sensibilities, but feel like I feel like saying something like fentanyl is a conspiracy to kill MAGA voters is the kind of thing that can haunt you in a general election. Um, am I wrong? Is that the sort of thing that Ohio is just too red? He's clearly the favorite, but it's just too red now. Voters are going to overlook all these indiscretions and just, you know, put their put their faith in the idea that he's J.D. Vance, the Trump guy, if that's your your predilection, or he's J.D. Vance, the elite lawyer who lived in San Francisco for many years. If you think that that's really you know the backstop that'll keep him a professional figure in Washington or does or do they just not care? Well, what's interesting about this race and, and keep in mind, Ohio is not just a, re a reddening state, but it's one that, you know, there are a lot of these Obama Trump voters in Ohio. So there are a lot of persuadable voters, at least that were once persuadable that swung in one direction. But the, both of these, these these guys are running against their own party. I mean, Tim Ryan's first ad was anti-China. It could have been run by J.D. Vance. It was an anti-China um, take on the communists, fight, fight, fight for jobs in Ohio message. And his second ad basically attacked his own party for defund, wanting to defund the police and for being too far to the left. So Ryan is running. I, I've said for a long time that if Joe Biden was looking at Tim Ryan's message, he would have had a much more successful first year in office because Democrats are too afraid to challenge their own extremes as a governing party. And if they did what Tim Ryan is doing, they might actually have some success or they would have had some more success uh, governing. That said, uh, Ohio is a state where the Democratic Party's brand has collapsed in, in the last six years. Trump won the state by eight points, about the same margin as, as he won Texas by in the last couple elections. Uh, you know, I, 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 I look, I have, I have, uh, I've been critical of Vance, but I think he's smart enough to run a good enough general election campaign, not to squander that advantage. Even though I think Brian is the is is, is the superior campaigner. Uh, the superior candidate in, in, in terms of his political track record. Uh, Vance also, by the way, running against his own party, even after winning the nomination, he, he went on Tucker Carlson's show last week 
after winning the nomination and attacked Karl Rove and the corrupt Republicans more than he attacked Tim Ryan. I mean, again, I can't believe that Vance isn't smart enough to know how to run a general election campaign, to listen to good advice, to do what it takes to hold on to, uh, you know, the eight point Republican edge in Ohio in a good Republican year. But so see, I think, I think is- Ryan may, may cut the margins a little bit, but I, I have a hard time seeing how Vance loses. And this is actually where the truly poisonous effect of Trump on on political culture is going to be felt, because someone like Vance, absent Trump ever having come on the scene, has a really fascinating story to tell Republican voters in Ohio. He's got this, you know, beautiful mixed race family. You know, he's got this like way of talking about coming back to his home 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 after having gone into the elite world and decided he wanted to come back and make sure that he was back with his people. Like there's a whole narrative you could have constructed absent this kind of Manichaean way of looking at the world that the Trump uh, worldview insists upon. And it is a huge misopportunity. And he is smart enough to do that. And he likely would have done that in, in that political situation. But I, I feel like he's going to end up, the authenticity problem is going to be huge for him if he keeps on, as you say, he went on Tucker Carlson to start, you know, lambasting uh, Republican elites too. It's it, I don't know that that's actually a great general election message. In Ohio, there are definitely, it's a very red place, but it's how MAGA is it? Like, how would how MAGA is it, I guess, is the test question of this upcoming election. But what do you think, Josh? Do you think it's MAGA enough that he's just got to stick with that message? Well, it's important to know that, like, primary voters are not swing voters. And, and you're seeing this in both parties' primaries. There's still a, a pretty important part of the electorate in a lot of states that doesn't like any of these extremes and, and will swing to the less extreme party. Um, so, you know, looking at just the Republic, the Republicans and the Democrats are, are just taking away any heretics. They, they want to ban anyone who has a, a crossword of, of where their parties are going. But those voters still vote in, in general elections. So, you know, to me, it's like, who, who can anyone play this game? Is anyone wanting to appeal to what still is a pretty significant share of swing voters, persuadable voters? Ohio has a good number of them, Obama to Trump voters. Um, and, 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 and Vance, is, 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 his message has been a little weird. I think, I think there is a lot of potency into this anti-elite messaging in Ohio, but there is this tension between the highbrow talk that Josh Hawley, I talked to Josh Hawley recently, and, you know, he lays out a pretty good case for the, you know, at least politically um, logical argument for like a populist argue, a populist uh, theory of the, of the case. Uh, and, and that's a high, very highbrow way of discussing this stuff. J.D. Vance certainly could do that, but he spent the final days of, of his campaign hanging out with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates. So that shows you the, 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 the problem there. Like you can you can talk about this intellectual populism, national conservatism all you want, but ultimately it's the lowbrow stuff. It's the WWE of politics, you know, where you're hanging out with the celebrities rather than just talking about ideas and policies. I don't think we should dismiss the possibility. I think, and it's one that I, I think John kind of uh, articulates from time to time that Vance is not being inauthentic here, that that he may have had a sort of sincere ideological conversion, which a lot of people have, and it's not, uh, it doesn't seem connected to IQ. Um, you know, it, it happens across, across the spectrum, across the intelligence spectrum, in which case, I don't know that he has an authenticity problem per se. I mean, he may mean it, I think it's a combination of, and I do believe, by the way, that a lot of, especially after the, I mean, the timing of Vince's evolution really kind of coincided with 
the, the how the left treated Kavanaugh. Um, and, and, and obviously there's a lot of overlap in, in, in Vance's circles during that time. I know plenty of, of, of conservative Republicans who were radicalized by, by that moment. And I, I imagine Vance would, would probably fit in that category. Um, so I, I, I don't downplay. His wife clerked for Kavanaugh when he was a federal judge. And his wife then went on to clerk for Justice Roberts. So I assume they had conversations about okay. that well, very here's, subject. You're, you're, you're talking to one of those Republicans who was very animated and mobilized and dare say radicalized by the Kavanaugh hearings. But if you're a conservative Republican who's been alive for 40 years, that should have been your eighth radicalization. If you if you just got radicalized, then you have not been engaged or paying attention to the various things that should have radicalized you over the course of your adult life. Uh, so, yes, I think he's entirely insincere. Maybe that doesn't matter, but he's he's completely faking it. Um, briefly, though, uh, you know, Tim Ryan has has done his best to sort of distance himself from the party's extremes, but he stepped on it, too, when it comes to what may be the most overinterpreted issue of the 2022 uh, election year abortion. When he, you know, articulated what is, I guess, the orthodoxy in his party when he was asked about any restrictions, late term, what have you, and just said, nope, got to leave it all open to the woman at any point, no matter what. Uh, that is unorthodox and out of step with Ohio's voters. Uh, I think that O'Rourke did something very similar, gubernatorial uh, candidate for Texas, however, however uh, viable he is in that race, nevertheless, articulated what is Democratic Party, Party's orthodoxy on this issue, which is restriction-free a radical libertarianism on the issue, which doesn't sit well in the mouths of Democratic voters or Democrat, Democratic politicians. They're not radical libertarians. They're just embracing it in this particular case, because in this particular case, they've made a religious conviction out of abortion on demand. Um, how resonant is abortion in November, Josh? And if it is resonant, did Tim Ryan shoot himself in the foot? So on abortion more, more generally, uh, I think Republicans have a lot more exposure, politically speaking, on the issue. Uh, I don't think it's going to be the top issue or a top, even a top issue in a lot of races. But there are some contests. There are some states where, where the stakes are, are quite high. Uh, Pennsylvania, we, we've been talking a lot about Pennsylvania, but you have a, a big governor's race where the, Republic, the, 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 the favored Republican nominee not only wants to, to ban abortion, but doesn't even want to have a life of the mother exception as part of his policy. That is the type of position that- That's insane. It's just insane. Right. Sorry, I'm just going gonna... to- Exactly, right. <laughs> Utterly it, insane. That is, is going to not just hurt the, the party in Pennsylvania and their ability to hold that seat, but that could end up becoming a problem even beyond the borders of Pennsylvania if you have a leading. And, 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 and you know that the, the press is going to want to like- you know, nut pick the, the, the you know, the, the, some of these crazies and use them as, as, a, as a face of the, of the what Biden is now calling the ultra MAGA movement. So, I mean, that you could all, all you could see Pennsylvania being a problem because even, even a less radical or less extreme nominee um, could dramatically change policy with the Republican legislature in Pennsylvania, conservative Republican legislature in Pennsylvania. Electing a Republican could shift, significantly shift abortion policy in the state. Wisconsin and, and, and Michigan, two other states, swing states, balanced opinion on, on abortion rights. But you could see a when you could see a dramatic change from the status quo, I think that that gives Democrats a little more of an opportunity. But you know, look, the other the other factor is Republicans are literally, if they don't 
nominate crazy candidates. This this is looking like a historic wave election for Republicans. I've never seen a political environment just in the broadest of senses as favorable as it is for the for the Republicans. They're winning. If you look at the national polling on almost every issue, you know, do you want the you favor the Republicans or the Democrats? They're winning on the economy, inflation, crime, immigration, education. They're almost tied. And that's an issue that Democrats used to have 20 plus point advantage on. I mean, literally every issue you can imagine Republicans are holding an advantage. Abortion is a little more divided. It's a little more of a wild card. So I think also it just creates a little more uncertainty in what has been a very favorable political environment for the Republicans. So well, it's very, I'm sorry, Abe, continue. Democrats are favored on issues that I personally don't really necessarily think are real issues. Um, voting rights, right? I mean, that's 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 a sort of, that's an issue that they sort of crafted to be an issue. And look and at yet, Georgia voting already. Look at the early voting tally already in Georgia, right. the state where where Joe Biden claimed Jim Crow was being reenacted. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. Well, I, well, protecting minorities generally is another one that that uh, that Democrats. So they're they're going to try to push those. Well, before we get away from abortion, <clears throat> I just want to highlight uh, yesterday's display of failure theater in Congress. Um, there was an effort to codify Roe, albeit uh, with more be a more expansive version of Roe, one that would likely end conscience protections and provide for elective abortion through the late term. And there was an, a profound lack of urgency around this. They'd obviously tried this once again, once in, in February, and it failed for the same reason it failed now, because the party is divided on it. Um, it went down with a bipartisan majority against it. Joe Manchin joined with a majority of Republicans so that 51 senators de defeated this piece of legislation that was never designed to become legislation. And um, Frank Thorpe over at NBC News had a very interesting observation when he noted that there's barely no senators were in the chamber for this. Maybe, you know, uh, a handful of senators were in it at any given minute. They, they left the vote open for 15 minutes uh, and it was, you know, there was just a very, a, a lack of any interest in the outcome here, which is really um, atonal and discordant given the the heightened sense of urgency around rhetorically around uh, what this apocalyptic decision could do to, to women's uh, health. Uh, and, and, the, and of course the expanded profile of rights here that, that are now somehow up in the air, the pro, uh, precedents in Griswold and Loving and half a dozen others. And yet it failed and it, they knew it was gonna fail and you, we all knew it was gonna fail and everybody acted like it was gonna fail. And it demonstrated that Democrats are not united on this issue. Well, it, it was um, also a huge, can I just say, it's a huge strategic move by uh, obviously, you know, Mr. Strategy himself, Schumer said with lots of sarcasm, um, because it opened, it, it's going to expose them to uh, revealing their hand on abortion in a way that, because this was not meant to codify Roe. It went far beyond, if it was going to codify Roe, then it would have had Manchin's vote. He put that on the record. He's like, if the, codifying Roe, I'm, I'm on board with that. We'll do that. This is not what it said. It, it eliminated the distinctions between health and, and mental health exceptions. It, I mean, it, it basically it, it actually says in the legislation that it would encourage courts to to look at these all, all any exceptions liberally. Basically, it would allow for a far more expansive view into the third trimester of abortion. It was it, which is not what the vast majority of American people want. So it, it does give an advantage to Republicans who want to turn and say they want abortion on demand until childbirth. That is not an American like they can use that to show the extremism. And Schumer went 
right ahead with it. It was fan service to the, I think it was fan service to the progressive base, quite honestly. So, so they call this a messaging bill and it's supposed to be political messaging, right? But you had one of your, your own members, Joe Manchin, vote against it and speaking out against the, 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 how far to the left it was, how it didn't just codify Roe and far beyond that, as Christine, Christine just said. So it undermines your own message. Like the, you don't usually bring a messaging bill that's going to hurt your own side. And yet that's what Chuck Schumer did. Uh, it is political malpractice. It's an issue where Democrats should, as I think, could have the upper hand, but they seem to do what they do best, miss an opportunity for every opportunity that, that that's presented to them. Gosh, you mentioned crime as yet another issue that's going to resonate in 2022, although perhaps unfairly because it's so, so much more of an, a local issue than a federal issue. But nevertheless, you know, you're, you're tripping over stories in the mainstream press about how Democrats just can't figure out how to message around crime. And we have what could be a, a pretty... Uh, earth shattering, uh, one of many that, you know, they, they somehow managed to, to ignore, but one of many signals that something really profound is in the offing with the recall election of district attorney Chesa Boudin in San Francisco. Uh, poll out yesterday suggested that only 22% of respondents were prepared to retain him in office, a, a, a significant majority approaching a supermajority uh, opposing his, uh, his, his or supporting the recall effort rather. And it does look like he is going to be the latest San Francisco official to be ejected from office as a result of this revolt of the populace against progressive policy prescriptions, first in education and now in uh, the reimagining of criminal uh, punishment and prosecutorial discretion. Um, are Democrats going to take that signal or are they just going to figure out how to rationalize that one away too? Well, so remember when the three school board members in San Francisco were recalled and the Democratic line was, this is, yeah, these, these guys really are crazy, but let's not draw any larger conclusions about where, where the party is. Like, you know, a crime, yeah, that, that's not going to have any larger impact. And now you're looking at reputable polling showing an overwhelming margin of Democratic voters in San Francisco want to recall Chesa Boudin, who's the, the face of this progressive prosecutor movement. They don't believe in actually prosecuting crime, at least lower level crime. And you're seeing just a remarkable spikes in violent and, and nonviolent crime in the city of San Francisco. And you, you see this elsewhere in, 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 in jurisdictions like Philadelphia, Los Angeles, uh, Milwaukee, that have uh, elected the, these types of prosecutors. If San Francisco votes two to one to, to, to oust, it's not, it's not easy to recall a sitting office holder. If they, they vote by that margin in one of the most liberal progressive jurisdictions in the country, if Democrats don't get that message and that they, they can't just say we want to put more money into the police, but we need to reject the extremes, these crazies, they're, 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 ne they're never going to get it and they're going to suffer severe political consequences. I, I, I wrote a column about this a few weeks ago, but I, I, I think in New York, some of the bluer state governor's races where there's these epicenters of disorder, New York, Illinois, Oregon. Um, and I know it's tough for Republicans to prevail in, in, in these blue states, but given that crime is such a salient issue and given that you have Democratic governors, Kathy Hochul declines to like actually revisit the bail law to the extent that it would give judges the power to keep violent criminals, in, in, in alleged uh, violent criminals in prison, 
that is there's going to be a backlash. We talked about this. Just how big of a backlash will that be? We talked about this yesterday. They sort of convinced themselves, well, we got rid of all the defund the police rhetoric. So we're good on this issue. But the defund the police rhetoric was a symptom of a much larger problem represented by these progressive prosecutors and which has manifested in policies that aren't just, you know, uh, anti-police. But as you say, are anti-prosecution and that bail law is perhaps one of the the most indicative of this sort of ethos. And it's shocking that Kathy Hochul and and Democrats in New York, after what they had just experienced with Andrew Cuomo, would cling to this thing as though it's valuable policy has been demonstrated. Anybody who reads The New York Post on a regular basis knows that the the the. the, these crimes that are, you know, getting a lot of high-profile attention are very often committed by people who are, you know, caught and just released there's, for lack there's, of bail for for things like arson. No, there's a there's a wonderful Twitter feed uh, that just tracks in for the Chicago metro area people who commit crimes who are out on felony bail, you know, who 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 are out when they should have been uh, they've committed previous felonies but but they were released and it's it's a shocking number of of uh, people in in the San Francisco race in particular, especially again for the Democratic Party, which is constantly talking about identity politics and and uh, equity, blah blah blah. 67% of Asian American voters in that were polled said they wanted Chisa Boudin gone. And a lot of the victims of a lot of these crimes have been Asian Americans in the San Francisco area. And their voices are not being heard. They are not being treated. They're being treated as the white adjacent privileged people. They were treated that way with regard to educational matters, both in, in California and you know closer to home here in Virginia. That is a sleeping giant that, that the Democratic Party has awakened and, and they will organize and they will they do not have any particular loyalty to either party at this point in our political recent political past. So it's a similar uh, phenomenon with Hispanic voters. Um, but I saw that number and thought, wow, these are people who are experiencing the fear of being targeted for their race and the city that's supposed to protect them is not doing it. You know, the uh, there's a the defense among the the hardcore progressives who don't want to who will, will not hear this message is that it's not happening is that this is all a twisting of crime stats. Uh, and it's a, and it, it's the it's an anti-Boudin campaign uh, run by billionaires and the people are falling for it. Right. There's there was I, I remember this line. It was like, well, actually, most crime is down. The only thing that's really up is violent crime committed by strangers against other strangers, which is the only thing that keeps you awake at night. It's the only crime that you're actually desperately in, in fear of. And it's uh, also property all, theft is up. It's also only true because they're also they've also stopped counting certain crimes in certain jurisdictions. And here in D.C., they won't even they just release people without papering these things so that it doesn't get put into the numbers and make the mayor look bad. So, there, I mean, there are a lot of this. And so the people to whom this has happened, if you've been carjacked, you remember what happened. And when you're told, well, there might have been a misdemeanor or such and such, you're like, wait a minute. No, no. Someone stuck a gun in my face and said, give me your car. They'll get papered over, especially if it's a juvenile here in D.C. But yeah, that's it. It's telling people that their reality doesn't exist and nothing gets someone angrier at the ballot box than that. I also think the mainstream press is not covered. I mean, I've, I've had so many sources come. I, I live in the D.C. area, just like Christine, and I, I can't tell you how many Democratic uh, operatives have emailed me and texted me. Why isn't the Post covering, you know, the carjacking epidemic in, in my neighborhood? Like, and I think one, one, one source told me that he can't even get the post delivered to his house anymore because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to deliver it for fear of, of, of a carjacking or fear of it being assaulted. And um, 
that's not being reported in the local paper. And, and that only hurts the Democrats. They're not the, the fact that we're and you see some papers not putting mugshots or not wanting to identify characteristics of, of criminals. That's only going to hurt. You can't you know, deny reality. And it's only going to hurt, uh, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party of that they're in denial about, about the salience of this issue in a lot of big, big elections. Josh, I want to put you on the spot. Tell us the race that no one's talking about that's going to be really important. Everything that's on the radar, we've already talked about, it's on everybody else's radar. What are we missing? Well, look, um, since we're talking about crime, and 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 I, I think this is a sleeper race that that's worth watching. Um, the Illinois governor's race is um, one fascinating race. J.B. Pritzker, a, a billionaire governor, kind of ran as a moderate in eighteen, but is certainly kind of, as we've been discussing, pandered to the progressives in, in office. And and there's a very fascinating Republican challenger who's backed by one of the the bigger Republican donors. Uh, in the country, Ken Griffin, uh, who, you know, Richard Irvin, he's the mayor of, of a suburb outside of Chicago, African-American, uh, very compelling candidate. Um, Democrats are actually trying to prevent him from being the nominee by, by getting involved in, in the primary. But if he does get the nomination and we have Illinois and the Chicago area, especially the epicenter of a lot of a lot of these issues we're talking about, inflation, crime. Um, education, a lot, a lot of the educational issues are, are really taking place in, in the in the suburbs around Chicago and the city of Chicago. Like, I, I think that would be a race to, to keep a, a close eye on. That, that could be an upset if, if Republicans can nominate someone <laughs> sane and, and normal. And, it, you know, if Pritzker continues to be in denial about some of these issues that, that he doesn't seem to be moderating or adjusting his tax. So Illinois, the Illinois governor's race, I think, is going to be one that's really worth watching. And plus, there's gonna be a lot of money being dumped into Chicago if, if you get that matchup. So. Yeah. so the headline from this podcast so far is Democrats are delusional and in denial and voters seem inclined to give Republicans all the rope they need to hang themselves with. As I like to say, extremes fuel the extremes and whoever wants. Can anyone play this game? Uh, can anyone play this game to quote Casey Stengel? The, the, the party that figures out that by just picking normal candidates and running uh, on normal issues. Um, they'll, they'll, they'll have the advantage. Josh Crashour, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And um, we're going to touch base with you, I hope, as uh, things heat up for the general election. Thanks, guys. Uh, for the absent John Podhoritz, and as always, Christine Rosen and Abe Greenwald, I'm Noah Rothman. Keep the candle burning.